Hello, and welcome to Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and this is one of our super exciting eerie extras, which is where Tony and I put all the stuff that we can't fit in elsewhere, including our super exciting interviews. We like to interview horror creators and horror scholars, and today I get to be joined by both a horror creator and scholar. So, Thank you so much, Dolly Tumajan, for joining us today. By us, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I I'm love the podcast. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. It is so nice to to be reminded that you know people are on the other side of the recording, particularly when I mess things up like my own name, which is how this <laughs> interview session started. So, um. You have a book coming out soon. So we're recording this episode on, uh, what is this? It is May 25, 2023. It will mm -hmm. be released sometime in June-ish. Uh, but when does Aseptic and Faintly Sadistic, an anthology of hysteria fiction, come out? Uh, officially, it is out already. Oh, it is. It okay. It is out uh, May 21st, I think Sunday. Uh, that's um, why I Googled it like on the 20th and it was like coming soon. So that's mm -hmm. excellent. Okay. So it is fresh off the presses. So it is fresh off the presses. All of our eBooks I think are out. Our packages are still being sort of packed up and shipped away to everybody, but it is out. It is released. It is out in the world. You can read it. Um, some folks have been very kind to me about it so far. It's, it's my baby. Yeah. It's fantastic. It really is. I, I will say this probably again at some other point, but you know it's a good piece of horror when it's hard to breathe. Uh, and I and I felt that way through, as I just like, I would be, have to remind myself that it's okay, but then it's not okay. So like, you know, I'm lying to myself and, and it just, this is what makes me excited about horror. So I can't wait to, oh, to talk to you about this you. more. Absolutely. Oh. So- I like to start with some sort of very weirdly intrusive question that also makes you have to think about answers you may not have been prepared to answer. So the first question is, if you had a soundtrack to your life, what would be the theme song? All right. So we're going to take it really old school and we're going to say that it is Tori Amos's Raspberry Swirl. Oh, that's exciting. Why? It's so it's got this sort of both like protective and exhausted sort of register <laughs> to it. Yes. And it's also like a certified bop. Like it is a like dance in your living room like kind of song. Yes. And like it's very defiant. It's very fun. I always really liked her. I always thought she was super neat. Yeah. And so like that's that is gonna be, you know. The outro, I guess. <laughs> I, that excites me. Because you have to have something that, like, you can bop your head to. But also, you know, it can't only be happy. It has to have that, mm -hmm. that note of, like, oh, what's happening here? That's great. I always struggle with this question because my, my aesthetic, personally, is creepily whimsical. Right? I like you to not know if you should be delighted and, and find something adorable or just really frightening. And I'm I'm struggling to find what that song is. Um, that's the the sort of musical equivalent of that. I'll have to think about it for yeah. a sec. Yeah, please. Thank Shoot. you. Because I do listen to a whole bunch of, like, little elf ladies. <laughs> yes. Yes, this is excellent. Okay. Let me know so I can adopt it. But 
while you're thinking of the answer to my question, <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about the title of the collection because it's it's beautiful, which is is part of oh, what my you. my question says. So there's there's two parts to this. So the title of the collection, again, for those of you listening, is Aseptic and Faintly Sadistic, an Anthology of Hysteria Fiction, with a nice colon in there between uh, aseptic and faintly sadistic. And then you got to get the academic. You, you can't do. do anything without a colon. I know. In the title. No. I've, I realized that like titles that only have four or five words make me somehow sad, right? Like you do, you have to have that colon in there. So let's talk about what's at the, the front of the colon. What prompted you to choose that phrase aseptic and faintly sadistic? So I knew that I wanted to do a reference as a, as a title, because hysteria writing and feminist engagement with hysteria is like a really long tradition. Mm -hmm. And I saw the things that I was going to pick as being in part of that tradition. And so originally it was going to be a reference to the yellow wallpaper. It was originally going to be uh, lock the door and creep by daylight. Oh, that's also beautiful. And then I thought about it for a while and I was like, you know, I don't know a ton about Gilman. Like, other than the yellow wallpaper, because right. until, like, two years ago, I was generally a contemporary scholar. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, am I going to bet the farm on a white woman from 1919? And the answer is no. Yes. The answer was no. Good it call, turns out that I had to learn a few things. And then so then she went right out. And I was like, all right, so I guess if we're going to do a reference, we have to pick somebody that we know pretty well. Yes. Because I'm not trying to get surprised. No. Um, and so specifically, this phrase appears in the story. It's the opening line to the story, Brenda, mm. by Margaret St. Clair. It appeared in Weird Tales in 1954, right at the end. Um, and the first line of the story is, Brenda Alden was a product of that aseptic, faintly sadistic school of child rearing that is already a little old-fashioned. Mm. And this story follows this girl who finds like a monster on her parents' vacation island. Um, and the ways in which she and a bunch of other women on the island are dismissed and disbelieved mm. and belittled, including using the dreaded H word. Um, and I knew a lot about St. Clair. She's one of my favorites. And there's something I don't want to give away, like the whole thing about the story, but this story itself was this the kind of the vibe that I was going for mm -hmm. that like you don't really know what you're saying and you're all gonna pay yeah and plus that particular set of words like as a writer all of those sounds together are so good yes and and they're visually pretty too right like they look nice they sound nice that that story I, I haven't read it before but now I'm gonna have to track it down I'm sure you have a Copy, I'll send it to you. Yeah, All perfect. of Weird Tales is available online oh at Archive. Oh, I'll send it straight to you. Oh, that's it's amazing. Like Thank you. Five pages long. It's just, she's one of the ones that I think holds up. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that like right now, if I sent a copy of like, I don't know, the corn dance to Uncanny, they would be like, yeah, this is how this was written yesterday. Yeah. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, no. And so, yeah, she's, a, I'm a big, big fan girl of hers. And I, I appreciate that you as an editor was thinking about the, the conversation. I, I could feel some of that in, in some of the stories that one of the ones that stories that came to mind um, is vegetable wife by Lisa Tuttle, I believe is her name. She's a science fiction writer. Um, 
and you know someone he grows himself a wife and and it reminded me of of course um that last story in the collection which is the how to is it how to build a girlfriend on a budget i think it's how to build a girl to love you on a budget yes um so so it remind you know and of course that story itself is referencing pygmalion but but there were lots of times that i just found myself reading something for the first time, but knowing the story already, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. knowing the, the trauma and the horror that was embedded in it because I had read those that before. Right. And so that was really mm-hmm. exciting. So I'm glad that you found a way to, to have that gentle nod. That's lovely. So on the other side, right. Of the, the colon is an anthology <laughs> of hysteria fiction. Um, and you've kind of alluded to this, the, the fact that hysteria, that word itself is so powerful and complicated and you do a little bit of this in your introduction, but I was wondering if you could sort of define how you were thinking of hysteria within the scope of this project and also how you see the stories, which are, are very diverse interpretations of the word, um, as sort of speaking to each other and building this really complex concept. So, yeah, hysteria has got a long, long, long complicated history, and it's been applied in so many different ways and it's it's such a large concept it's been applied from everything from like beatlemania to the satanic panic to that summer we all played pokemon go together <laughs> do you know what i mean yes. like and but most oftenly it is used to silence women and other marginalized people who are speaking the truth about their lives. And it's especially used as a way to silence people in the case of reproductive justice. And then of course, there's also that fun little like wandering uterus bit to it. So I thought that was great. Um, And so in that case, I see hysteria as a way of speaking truth to power. Um, And yeah, there's like a whole, like in some of the ways articulated by like Suzu, in that, like, you won't listen to my words, so you're going to listen to this. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know what I mean? It's that kind of of using your body to communicate something sort of, like, dire and important that has been silenced. And so that's been weaponized against marginalized people everywhere. It's, I mean, as a woman... <laughs> You can't right. have a feeling, like you know, right? Right. You have a feeling, and that's it. You're done. Um, and so, and it's been weaponized against like black people speaking out about the police. Like, oh, I think you're just, you know, I don't know. You're putting. We can't see the forest for the trees there. Like, it's used to silence people who are speaking uncomfortable truths about large, powerful things. And so I wanted it to, you know, speak back to that. And so I was hoping for like a series of screams, like Mm -hmm. stories that gave voice to like the disgust and anger and frustration that come along with being told that you're hysterical and also with the like power that's inherent of like, well, I'm screaming and no one's going to stop me. Like, so there's like a double-sided coin there, right? And so it's a really loaded term. And I wanted something that challenged the ways the term has been applied. And the stories I picked 
all engage with it, in my opinion, each in their own complex and really beautiful way. Um, some of them interact directly with ideas about the problems raised by the idea of forced pregnancy. Um, Nectarine, I'm not going to say anything about the story because you just have to go into it blind, but like Nectarine Apple Pear, in my opinion, like I read that, I felt like somebody punched me in the chest when I mm. got to the end of it. When I figured it out, I was gasping, mm. like couldn't believe it. And then there's this beautiful story by um, Ian Gabriel Loisel called Right to Life that's about uh, the reproductive future where like the poor barter for healthcare by serving as living batteries for the rich and the elite. And it follows this girl, this young girl who's tethered to like a piano virtuoso. Yeah. And it asks so many interesting questions like, are some lives more important than others? How important exactly? And like, what kind of loss of control comes out of both of those positions of being important and of being like consumed by power hmm. because it's it's about the way that power doesn't discriminate it replicates itself um you know, who else do i want to shout out i've shouted out a lot of them christy nogle wrote uh she's got the second to last story it's bitter mm -hmm. makes the sweet so sweet and i don't know if she doesn't win an award for that christy was robbed <laughs> like i get to say that because i'm the editor yeah. But if she does not win an award for that story, she was robbed. Unless she loses against somebody else in the anthology. <laughs> but, like, it's about this young woman who returns home to deal with her father who has come back and he's ostensibly kind of a vampire. Mm. And the way that it deals with this kind of hysteria as this low, boiling, heightened emotional state brought on by factors that are like really outside of your control it's she's one of the most technically skillful writers that we've got out mm. there i mean just incredible um she's so adept at finding like this really tender place and just pricking it with a needle oh that's interesting like it's it's a subtle subtle story but when you you get into it it's like oh and you know i had to read them all like 14 times each right right <laughs> oh, pardon me real quick <clears throat> i had to read them all a bunch and every time i read that story i learned something new wow. about it every time i picked up another small tiny detail that related to another detail and if you don't read it 19 million times you can still get it but it's one of those beautiful stories that you can continually re-engage with um oh phenomenal phenomenal uh and I that's one I'm of the done. that's one of the longer stories mm -hmm. in the anthology too it is she's got one of the longer stories Haley piper has one of the longer stories i'm a big fan of both ends of the spectrum i've got a lot of flash fiction in there yes too. you do which was exciting Tanya Chen's speak of the hunger is just like lyrically impressive so beautiful and again it talks about hysteria being sort of a natural reaction to like have you seen what's going on do you know what i mean mm -hmm. like 
hysteria is perfectly warranted are you like jesus have you looked at anything yes and so like that's what i thought touched on it each of them go at it in such a different delicate smart unique way that like i just think that they've they've got something really to say that stands so well in that tradition of people speaking the way that they've been you know silenced with that Mm-hmm. And and earlier when I said that that it made this collection made it hard for me to breathe, I think what you just said explains that because hysteria is not meant to be a sustainable state of being, right? Mm-hmm. And and yet, as these stories time and again sort of suggested, um, we've been there way too long. And yeah, something extreme may have just happened because some of the stories get sort of mm-hmm. fantastical, but. Um, the, the one story that's coming to my mind is, um, is it called China Girl or China Doll? China Doll. China Doll. Yes. Where, I mean, there's the fantastical that's happening, but there, there also was just the part where Mm -hmm. she's having to go to the doctor and let's hope that the doctor actually listens to what she's describing because, Mm -hmm. and, and I could just feel these layers and, and that story in particular with that, that excellent use of second person, uh, you know, which is a hard hard thing to pull off as a, as an author and as a reader, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to sometimes read uh, second person, but we have second person and we have first person, you know, I mean, that was such a, a good example of, of the things that you were saying that gave me chills when you were talking about what hysteria is at its, at its heart. So that's excellent. I hate and love the end of that story at the same oh, time. I know. Do you I mean, know what I mean? It's like, it's like, oh, I know, I know it's the truth. Like, do you know yes. what I mean? Like, I know it's the truth. And that says something about me that I want to resist that yes. too. But like, it's just, yeah, yeah. These, these folks wrote their little booties off. I yes. can't. And they, they went to a lot of places and said a lot of things that needed to be said and very loudly, in my opinion. I just thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, that story in particular is it's come up a bunch. I've gotten like emails about it and stuff. Really? Like, wow. People love that yeah. story. And so, I think it's because, especially for women, a bunch of a lot of us have been there in some way or another. Yes. yes. Of being reduced or diminished and and not in that particular method that she talks about, but it's it's like Oh, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) Yes. And I think that's what was so powerful is that in all of the stories, I I couldn't identify maybe with the explicit source of horror, but I could certainly relate to all the other layers of horror that are the true things that are causing my chest to, to be, you know, moving too fast and my breathing to be too shallow, because that was the part I could relate to. Um, And that, that was exciting but i i want to circle back to something you said about having read you know the stories 14 15 16 <laughs> times each because i've edited a collection now it was it was um essays that are as opposed to fiction so maybe it would have been different if it had been creative fic- stuff instead of um you know academic but it was so much work and mm-hmm. at times m- maddening and like just there were times I, I didn't know if I wanted to lay down or if I wanted to like crawl into a hole. So I, I don't think I will ever, ever, ever edit again. And I know some people find it and they really appreciate it, but I just want to know why did you decide to take on this project? And 
were there any memorable moments where you found yourself just incredibly excited by what you were working on? You've sort of alluded to some of this already, mm-hmm. but I just would love to know um, what made you feel like I need to be the editor on this collection? And then what made you just glad you'd made that decision somewhere along the way? Man, it is it is so much work. Oh my gosh. This, this kept me busy for a year. I take back as a creative every thought I have ever had about like an editor, about like long response times. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I take it all back. If this was a one woman show, this anthology wouldn't have come out for 15 years. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, and as a writer, like when you're on the creative side of it, you don't get to see how the sausage is made all the yes. time. And like, we're all guilty. I think of like, oh my God, what's taking so long. <laughs> And but then you're staring down like 400 stories. Then you can't read those for eight hours. Like mental no. fatigue is real, and it's like, oh, that's what's taking so long. So yes. like, yes. it, it yes. I absolutely like. Oh man, it gave me a real appreciation for what all of the other editors were doing. I would do it again. Wow, not immediately. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to graduate first. Yes, good plan. Good like, plan. I'll be honest with you, if I can make the lane, like I'm willing to do the work. Do you know what I mean? And so like, if I can get the space to make the lane, I'll do the work. That's fine. Um, Let me see, God, what else did I? It's just, it's my baby. And I sort of, I took it on because I live in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to live for 90% of my life in major metropolitan cities and whenever anything like weird happened there was a way to like voice that or go somewhere you could go to the bar and everybody was talking about it or like if you go to dc and anything happens you just go to the white house there's a hundred people there they're already screaming you can just feel better and i'm like in the middle of nowhere there's no vigil there's no protest there's not it's just me sitting here calling my representatives who don't give a damn, but you know, and so it gave me a place, even though I like had to invent the time to do it, it gave me a place to put that energy. It gave me a little bit of confidence that like, no, I'm really going to be able to help here. I'm going to be able to just like, I know it's not much, but like now it's a th- now you've got a thousand and one dollars. Like I just I did my little thing because all a, a portion of all proceeds go towards mm-hmm. the Roe v. Wade. Proceeds go to Chicago Abortion Fund. Perfect. Um, and I don't have the exact number on hand immediately, but the first check will be not bad, I believe. And oh, so, like, I'm, I'm really happy about that. We we've done. A lot of good work. We did a lot of sales. We settled a lot of pre-order bundles because we had that T-shirt with our cover on it. Yeah. Um, shout out to Mary, who's just a queen. I love Mary. <laughs> um, and let me see. So yeah, working with her was phenomenal. Oh, and the when I I mean I've been psyched the whole time. Like yeah. like I like got into this, but when I was making the table of contents, I made like the series of index cards with like the titles and the author and then on the back, like the length and the like format, if I needed to know that and like the topic and any major driving imagery, cause you have to build it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, 
And I was, as I was doing that, I have this little stack of cards and I'm going through it and I'm going like, this one should be first. Mm-hmm. No, this one should be first. No, I want this one to be first. No, this one should be first. And I was like, okay, I'm critical as hell. Yeah. So if I'm sitting here doing this, like, I got something here. Like, I, I, that was looking at the TOC and realizing that, like, figuring out which story was first was a nightmare. It took me, like, three weeks to do the TOC order. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I can imagine. Well, I wanted to give everybody, I mean, everybody had something so important to say. And I know a lot of people say build it with, like, your strongest stories first and, like, well, that was impossible because all of my stories mm. were the strongest stories. <laughs> and so yes. I tried to build it by like certain themes. Do you know what I mean? And things yeah. like that. But yeah, going through that table of contents, man, that was that was when I was like, damn, this is this is real and this is incredible. That's great. I I always appreciate it when you can tell that the editors did take time to to build a narrative with the stories as they relate to one another, right? As opposed to just the big named authors first or whatever it might be. (laughs) Um, And I will say that was my experience. That was the one, like when I saw the table of contents and realized how amazing each essay was, that was the shining moment. The hardest part, which I don't think you had to deal with was the, we had to do an index and I hate it. I realized I will never. No, no index for me. I I will pay someone the next time. Or I just won't have an index. Like it was, it was a nightmare. You have to pay somebody. Now yeah. that I'm in the middle of my dissertation, oh my gosh, and I find a book without an index, I was like, I will hunt you down. I know, I know that is true. Like that, I use it too much to like not put it in. But dear heavens, so I have a question because I, all my editing is is usually either you know on the academic side or it's helping students to, to push their horror writing, which is just kind of a separate creature. But like mm. how this was not one of the questions and I apologize ahead of time that I had prepped you for, but I was just I'm curious how, how hands-on were you as an editor? Um, and what did you see as your role in being the editor of these really great writers, many of whom, you know, have been writing successfully and prolifically for quite some time? Listen, some people just got an email that said no changes. I'm not okay. <laughs> I'm fair. not gonna yeah. lie. Not a lot of them. Okay. But some people got an email that said, like, what do I have to tell you? Nothing. Yeah. Like, and that actually a couple people you wouldn't expect got mm. no changes to. Um that's exciting. Because what I see my role is is not necessarily to like get my little tootsies in all of these pies and rearrange them all. It's to really sit down and figure out like what makes this story the most it it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And so I approach them all very individually. Um, some people got a couple line edits, flow edits, you know what I mean? Nothing major. Um, some people got no edits. There was just nothing I had to say. Like, you built this. I Maybe somebody who's got more experience than me knows, but I'm like, no. I see where every brick is supposed to go. <laughs> I can't see a single thread loose. So why am I going to fiddle with this? Yeah. Like, that's not my place. Yeah. And so 
And I don't think I did. I didn't ask anybody for major developmental edits because I sort of figured like I was not in the habit of saying yes to things that I thought needed major developmental edits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was difficult though um, to sit down and especially like the level of some of that writing. I was like, could you just come beta read for like me? Can I just like, I'll pay you. Yes. Okay, I'll give you whatever you want. Yes. But it was uh, humbling. Some of it, some of it was deeply, deeply humbling as an editor. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, my editorial philosophy is basically like, I'm here to like whoop you up. <laughs> um, and sometimes that means doing nothing. And sometimes that means like fiddling with your opening and closing line. And sometimes that means fiddling with the flow of your sentences. But I tried to do my best to make every story the most of what I saw, and there goes 90 years of education helped me with this, <laughs> the most of how I saw it being built. Because mm -hmm. I've got through all this ridiculous education, like the ability to see the math equation yeah, yeah, as it goes in there. And so I, I just sort of made sure that nothing was out of place in like your own personal equation. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's a really lovely way to think about editing. I'll have to keep that in mind when I'm helping the next batch of students because I teach a create a class that meets a creative expression requirement. So they are writing mm -hmm. horror fiction and, and I think it will help them. Yeah. So they, they write or um, actually one of my students made a, a doll like, so they can kind of do whatever they want. Um, and then they made a film, but like, I think it would help them because I get a lot of STEM students surprisingly um, to, to help them think about it as, as that analytical, right. That it really mm -hmm. is about like, no, it has to be five because the numbers are three and two. Um, yes. That's really yes. helpful. I've, I've explained it to like people before, like, like what I used to explain to my students is that like, it's not magic. It's not talent. It has a structure. Mm -hmm. And once you can see the pieces of the structure, and once you know the history of how pieces of that structure have been used, mm -hmm. like you can begin to fiddle with it. Yes. And like, yeah, that's sort of very much my like, no, no, no. Writing is not mystical. There's, there are rules and laws to it. Yes. And that's why, I mean, that's at the heart of this podcast really, because I, I spent too much of my life being taught that there was the creative and there was the, the scholarly mm -hmm. and that, you know, I should treat these, these two separate mm -hmm. creatures. And it's like, but my, I'm a better writer when I'm analytical and creative, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I, and I'm a better scholar when I'm creative in how I approach something. So why, why wouldn't I blend them together? But I don't think I say that to my students enough in the creative class. I feel like having done like an MFA and then oh. like an analytical scholarly based yes. PhD afterward, I really got like the best of both worlds done. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because I was taught that ability to really get into stories that aren't mine. Yes. And that's so, so important. And so like, I am, I am the close reading champion, the close <laughs> reading champion of the world. Yes. But like, yeah, it, it really is. I think that that mix is really important to understand. And it's something that young writers don't understand a lot. I certainly didn't mm -hmm. understand it. When I was young, I thought that I was just a genius and these things that were falling out of me were just genius and not that I was unconsciously mimicking yes. all of the things that I had already internalized. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the advice is always to like read if you're going to be a writer, but but mm-hmm. I wish more people would explain it's so that you can do the equation, right? Like that's yes. why you're reading. Um, it's not just so that you know what's out there. It's so that you can understand why your story has to be end at five. Because again, you had three and two as your numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you read it and you go like, if you read a story that you were like, I don't like this ending, this twist ending blew me away. Like it's in there. It's not a mystery. You just need to sit down and look at every spot where the ending was either hinted at or gestured to, and then look at how they built it. Yes. And I think with horror, if you if you don't know how to analyze the source of horror, right, that thing that is supposed to keep mm-hmm. your audience up at night and make them feel really uncomfortable, and in good stuff, it's rarely the obvious monster, you know, lurking mm-hmm. in the corner. Um, once you learn how to do that, then that's when stuff becomes scary. You know, my students are always like, this doesn't feel scary to me. And I'm like, that's because you didn't write something that was scary to you. You didn't write something mm-hmm. that touched on one of your sources of horror. And then by the end of the semester, I'm like, ha, huh, now you're touching on the stuff that that terrifies you deeply. Um, and and it's the stuff that, that your anthology is all looking at, right? It's the stuff about why aren't you listening? I'm screaming here. And I can't scream much longer. So that's that's mm-hmm. just so exciting. Okay, so you've got your your MFA and you have your creative side, but then you yes. are also this uh, horror scholar who's so very close <laughs> to being done. With so your, close <laughs> with the dissertation, and you said that you're working on a project that's examining the women who wrote for real weird tales. Yes, so I put a limit on it because I know that like. You're literally writing a book on it, but you geek get out. three. <laughs> you got seven <laughs> hours for me to geek out. <laughs> I, I've learned my lesson. You get three right. of the most interesting things that you've learned about in your research. Because what's exciting about your research is that you're you're looking at something that I'm I'm not sure a lot of other scholars have really looked at. Not a lot. Not a lot. There are some, um, but as per usual, the women have been fairly roundly ignored. Yeah. Um, I, I had to spend a lot of time scraping together other women, uh, other women academics, sci-fi academics mm. have done tons, tons more work than anybody in like the Gothic or the weird or the weird tales mm-hmm. era. They just sort of skip them. Oh, that's um, interesting. And so like, I just, no. So, like, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and it's, it's, it's a passion of mine. All right. So let's do, let's do the three things. I'm going to limit yes. it. One of these is longer and two of these will be shorter. Okay, I promise. But here's why it's a passion of mine, right? There is this idea that you will especially see um, put out by certain folks that horror, speculative fiction in general is the playground of like cisgender, able-bodied, like white men who invented this. And now we're at the gates of their house, like telling them that they have to redecorate, right? Mm -hmm. This is demonstrably false. This is not the case. Um, Weird Tales is like the place that birthed our modern understanding of speculative fiction and especially of horror, right? It still exists. It's amazing. Everybody should go read it. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most 
consistently interesting vehicles for speculative fiction that we've got. This is literally the playground they are talking about, right? And so let's see who's playing. Hmm, it was full of women. <laughs> like, it was full of women. Um, we have a little, we have more information about women than we do about other marginalized folks because that was basically collected by like names, which mm -hmm. was easier to look at. And we've also lost a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it looks like there were around 500 women pulp authors who were active at the time. Wow. About 130 of them wrote for weird tales. Usually, in fact, a lot of them wrote, all of the women in my dissertation, more than once. Uh, some of them wrote 15, 30 stories, you know, over the course okay. of that time. All of the editors published women writers during their tenure. 40% okay. of its poets were female. About 30-ish percent of its fiction was written by women. About 40% of the Weird Tales Club was women. Hmm. Um, it was run for 99% of its original tenure by first a disabled man hmm. and then a woman. Most famous cover artist, Margaret Brundridge, was a woman, right? Hmm. And so I'm not saying it wasn't like harder for women, right? Sure. I'm not saying that they found it like super easy to just waltz into weird tales and they were just throwing bags of money at them. No, it's not a level playing field. We've always dealt with inequality, but on that severely unlevel playing field, we've always been playing. Mm. And so like the first thing that I've learned, like first and foremost through this is that this is not your playground. You have decided that this is your playground. Maybe uh -huh. you haven't done your homework. I'm going to get old. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe you don't know it as well as you think you do. But like, no, you're wrong. Just because you read all dudes uh -huh. doesn't mean that those are the only people doing anything. Uh -huh. And so that's my like fist pounding like realization yes. out of that. Um. Let's see, the Funsies one, one of their writers, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, was this real character. She uh, got sick of her husband, so she bought like a 160-ton steamboat that she <laughs> named Liotta, moored on her property, and when she was sick of him and wanted to write, she would just like get on her boat and... Yes. Yes. <laughs> she, ooh, she was the queen of Pulp Fiction gossip. She, if you wanted to know the tea about the editor, you wrote to Mary Elizabeth Councilman and she would tell you. And her son threw away all of her papers and manuscripts despite being begged by the library to archive them. And I don't know if he's still alive, but he can see me in the parking lot. Yeah. D like, has he given any sort of explanation? Not that I've been able to find, okay. no. Okay. I imagine that he just resented the whole damn thing, yeah. you know? like, Or, I mean, alternately, maybe she wasn't a very good mother. Like, that's... Yeah, maybe that's she was on her steamboat instead of, you know? Uh, yeah, maybe she was on her steamboat and left him. Um, but, yeah, she was, like, the center of, like... Like, Lovecraft's letters are one thing, and we still have them, mm -hmm. which helps. But she was really the nexus point of, like... Oh, let me tell you about him, honey. Yes. And you know, that's where all the good information is. Yes. 
Um, and let me see the third thing I learned. I think the first one of the very first, I think it's the second advertisement in the very first issue of Weird Tales is for Margaret Sanger's book on birth control, uh, mm. Woman in the New Race. Mm. It is one of the very, very first advertisements. Um, that is a fantastic tidbit. I know when I saw it, when I was going through, when I was going through the archive, I yeah. just had to keep reading the magazine and I saw it and I was like, damn, all right. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know what I was expecting to find in there. I think, sure. I, and don't get me wrong, like it's full of racism and Orientalism <laughs> yeah. and sexism. It is not like we progressive. It's, <laughs> I mean, some of it is, but like, it's a real mixed bag. But I think immediately opening it up and finding like in like, you know, 1924 mm. birth control was yes. for me like a real like, oh, this is a little different than I thought it was. Yeah. Moment, I guess. So did you, um, you mentioned archival. So were you, there's an archive that you were accessing all of these in their sort it's of just on internet form, archive. Just, oh, wait, it's, it's an Our internet friend, archive. the Wayback Machine. Wow. Our friend, and I also, I because Wayback Machine and, and Archive is under a whole bunch of issue, I guess. They're getting sued mm, mm. for be, letting people, like, read books, I guess. Huh. So I actually, just in case, downloaded every freaking PDF. Yeah. I, yes. Every last one. That's so. amazing. I, I'm the same way. I, if, I'm, if I can digitally hoard it, I'm mm -hmm. going to because I'm just not going to find out. Yeah, I can't. I can't have that like, oh, this thing that I've been relying on is gone. <laughs> yes. No, I can't. Yeah. I can't. What made you um, you know, committing to a dissertation topic is is not an insignificant commitment. What made you feel like this is the direction you wanted to head? Which is also for those of you listening, a question that I did not give uh you know, ahead of time. Nerding out about it over my comps. Mm. My my comprehensive exams were on a slightly different. They were it was on contemporary. I was planning on writing on contemporary mm. stuff. Um, a lot of my comps was contemporary stuff. A lot of Helen Oyeyemi and all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then I like started reading some of these women though because I was reading for like the whole twentieth century, and I started reading Margaret Saint Clair. And I geeked out about Margaret St. Clair. Hmm. And then I checked out a couple of the other ones. And I didn't quite geek out about them the way I did like Margaret St. Clair. Mm -hmm. But like, as a little girl, I had actually read C.L. Moore's Chamblow. I was like 13 years old. It was in an anthology of horror stories about cats, mm. which is not entirely the case with that story. But... <laughs> I had read that when I was a little kid and loved it so deeply. And when I got into to Margaret St. Clair and I realized that that was in the same general vicinity as her, that that was another woman pulp author. And then I also really liked, um, this is a little later than my archive, but, uh, oh no, what is her name? The little dirty girl. She's also a scholar, Joanna Roos. I don't How know. to suppress women's writing? I'm so bad at remembering author right? names. Same, same. Yeah, but or I, character she names. Wrote the little or... dirty girl. Okay. And so I started reading a lot of this pulp stuff 
to to take my comprehensive exam and I realized that it was so much different than I had thought mm. and that they were saying a lot of things about their lives that people claimed were sort of new expressions for women. Mm. Like a lot of them were really like uh, marriage. Marriage is the is the the subject of a lot of like I'm not interested uh. in any of this shit. Like it's it they they were saying a lot of things about their lives mm. that people claimed are sort of newer speech that women are unhappy now and that mm. our grandmothers didn't do this. Well, apparently, yes, they did, and they were writing about it in yeah. weird tales. Oh, that's so interesting. I really liked your. Your first, I liked, I mean, I enjoyed all of your three interesting things, but I appreciated that your first one about the, this reminder that, you know, this is, is not something where it's like, we temporarily let you women in as house guests, but please no. know that, you know, we've created this home. It's like, no, we, the hell out of here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, I think that's something that I often have to really work hard to get people to see who don't really know horror, right? Because mm -hmm. there is, because the horror genre, the contents especially, um, have historically, what has been mainstream, uh, been both a challenging home um, for women and BIPOC and queer writers at the same time mm -hmm. that it's been um, the perfect place for mm -hmm. writers to explore the horrors of being marginalized, silenced, and broken over and over again, or, you know, um, made hysterical over and over again. So you alluded to this at the very beginning when you said that you wanted aseptic and faintly sadistic to be in conversation. Um, mm -hmm. In your terms of your dissertation, you talked about the fact that this is not a new conversation. We have been part of this story from the start. So how do you see aseptic and faintly sadistic as entering into this conversation with not only the genre of horror, but also with a world that needs to be reminded that women make horror just as much as, as men. So one of the main problems that I see marginalized writers having is actually space. And space like means a lot of things. Like for one thing, it means venues. But for another thing, it means having people at those venues who are able to like properly process and engage with stories from women, from marginalized people, from BIPOC, from queer folks. Like, you know, good writing isn't like a universal white Western concept. Mm -hmm. And so good writing means something different and what you engage with means something different. And so like, you can say that the door is open but if you don't have anybody knowledgeable about how to connect with those modes of writing when you get them, then the door may as well be closed. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so like the first awesome thing that happened here was that the gentleman at, at Cosmic Horror Monthly knew that they wanted to help, but they also wanted to clear the bar that is in hell <laughs> and that they were going to need somebody who had had more experience in this than them. Mm -hmm. um, like they knew that it was kind of like a specialized knowledge or like breath of lived experience that they generally didn't have. And so like, like call Carson up right now and ask him, I don't know, how many times in his life 
has a man told him that he was being hysterical and how has that made <laughs> him feel each time? Like there's, right. there's a level of experience that needs to be sort of, of brought to some of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily like gatekeepy. It's just knowing that like certain knowledges matter. Do mm-hmm. And the knowledge of lived experience is one of those knowledges that, that counts for quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where I saw it going was making the teeniest, tiniest space for the teeniest sliver of us who needed to say it. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more work to be done. But my little drop was that, like, I tried to be a good shepherd for your stories. I tried to connect to you on the level that you're coming to me on. I tried not to evaluate you against I don't know against some construct that's that's not quite universal to begin with mm-hmm. and so that's sort of where I went in there is I just made like a little spot and it's a spot for people to speak and even if it's just you know in our little horror community even you know I, I made a tiny tiny spot for people to speak and that to me means so so much because just having the space is so limited and so difficult to find when you need it, you know? Mm-hmm. I've gotten so many rejections from people who just plain didn't get it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. Where it's like, oh, you didn't get it. I'm not mad at you, but oh, like. Yes. And I think that's what we need, right? We need those little spots. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a, a really interesting op-ed that was not at all about horror. Is about the the filmmaker and writer Mindy Kaling and it, and it was saying mm-hmm. we can't be mad at her even though she writes the exact same character in everything she does we need to be mad at an industry that has made it so that is the only character we get because she's the only one getting yes. to write it and yes and i thought that was the most in a world that is so interested in blaming people i was it was so nice to read something that was like no let's take a step back but also let's let's cast the blame where the blame is and it's you know Jordan Peele is only going to be able to write the stories that Jordan Peele can write, but he shouldn't be the only black only filmmaker. One. Yes. And, and that's what I enjoyed about, um, that's why I think this had to be an anthology, right? Like I needed to hear everyone's voice mm-hmm. and, and know that not all the stories resonated with me on the same level, but that's okay. Right. That's not ha- what it's supposed to do. But knowing that there was a voice out there that is for someone, uh, just was, Again, it made it difficult to breathe and in a really good way. Yay. That's one of the things that I've noticed about this anthology that's great is that everybody I've talked to is madly in love with a completely different story. Yes. Everyone I've talked to is like, this is the one. This is the one. I've got my own ideas that are completely private. We'll never hear. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is the one. This is the one. So everybody that I've heard from has resonated with a different piece of it. And so that to me, oh, that means that, you know what I mean? Like that means a lot to me. I sometimes struggle as a reader with short story anthologies precisely for that reason, right? Like not every story is going to hit you the same way because you're going to find that some writers work better for you. But whereas sometimes in some anthologies I'm frustrated because I'm like, I didn't want to read this story. I wanted to read more of so-and-so's story. I didn't feel that way in reading and reading hey. this one. And and I, I think some of it is, is, is honestly the caliber of the stories is so high. You did such a good job of 
finding the voices that needed to be put together in this anthology and letting them shine. But also that slush pile. Oh, so how many submissions did you get? Do you remember? Around 300. Oh my god. Which gosh. for a limit for a very limited call. Yeah. Is in my that's, opinion, a lot. That's was a, a lot. That's a lot. And it was, I had the first little like, what if nobody sends me any stories? Like, do you know yes. what I mean? Like yes. that little scared. And then within three days, I was like, well, that's certainly not a problem we're going to be having. Uh, <laughs> yes. We had the completely opposite problem where like I had 100,000 words and oh they gosh. were like, yeah, you got 50,000 words. Like, oh my like, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's its own devastating issue. But, mm -hmm. but the fact that you allowed the different voices to be together in this case... I, maybe because I knew that we needed to hear everyone's version of hysteria, even if it wasn't my version, right? Um, just meant that the the piece or the collection resonated in a way that I don't I don't usually feel like is true for anthologies that have as many diverse stories as yours do. Because, like you said, you have flash fiction, you have lyrical horror, you have stuff that's that's bordering on science fiction, um, and that's a hard. That's a hard sell, right? To be like, read all these different versions. But mm -hmm. but I think your post colon part of your title, an anthology of hysteria fiction was great. Did you purposefully avoid the word horror in, in the... Um, no, but when I, I got a bunch of the stories, I was like, classifying some of these as horror is not yeah. correct. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and so I just didn't want to do you know what i mean like i yeah. just went with the speculative word we're just gonna go with speculative yes because there's a, a couple fantasy stories in there i think there's two fantasy stories in there mother Mansrot, she's going to be reading uh at our release party which is happening well when this comes out what will have happened three weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> is it virtual um, it is virtual That's yes so do you have the link no, you'll have to send it. It's to up me. in Howells. I'll drop it again as oh, soon as it because I'll be dropping it again tomorrow too, and I'll tag you. Perfect, excellent. And for those of you that don't know, Howells is the horror obsessed writer, no. writing and literature society. Thank you. It's a book club. <laughs> yes, uh, and it's on it's on Discord, and it's it has been a game changer in connecting to the to the horror community because I don't think I realized I always wanted to have that cafe, right? Because I was also mm -hmm. an English major, that cafe that was probably going to be in Paris where the five other people were also seated there. And I've mm -hmm. bemoaned the loss of that my entire life um, for something that, that, you know, probably wasn't actually that wonderful anyway, considering the people that were in that cafe. But, but this is the, this is our version of that, you know, this mm -hmm. is, and it's really exciting to, cause I know there are people that are in there. Um, and I would say you're one of them that I'm going to, be able to start saying to not just people in house. Oh yeah, I got to talk to Joel, and they'll be like the Joel Jolie, and I'll and they'll be like not Tuma John, and I'll be like yes, I got to talk to her back when she was still talking to the little people. Like they're you know and and big timed all of us. Yes, and, and Christy eight million dollars, and nobody ever saw her yes. again. And Christy Nogle's on that list, right? There's like, there's several people that yeah, I'm just like, it, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna get to have a back when story um, someday. So, so there this are, is there are a lot of people in that little writers group who I think are the either the current wave or next wave 
and that we will be reading in like a hundred yes. years. Yes. Easy. Christy's and I, have, one of them. I have never been a part of a group that is as prolific of, of writers and readers. I mean, they actually, sometimes it's discouraging because I, I realize that, you know, in like a two day period, some people write more than, than I feel like I get to in a, in a year, but it is a reminder that it is about yeah. coming to it on a regular basis as a craft. And it it's takes just really me six exciting. months to write a story. They'll well, that fun. makes me feel you know, so much better. Fun. There are some of those folks that are just like, no, just wrote I'm a not. novel yesterday. And I'm like, dear heavens, please stop. Please <laughs> That's just Carson. stop. Carson Winter, my co-author, is and and one of the fine gentlemen from uh, Cosmic Horror is like that. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I wrote a short story yesterday. It I took know. him like six hours. He hands it to me. It's freaking perfect. I know. I um, I get I get to talk to Carson on on this podcast on a regular basis. In fact, I'm going to be interviewing the two of you together um, for yes, the project that's later. coming out. Yes, and. And it made me a little sad when he was like, well, I've got 17 projects in the works. And I was like, oh, okay, well, Listen, thanks. I got two stories out floating in the world right now. And that's all I'm going to do for a minute. Some of well, us... in your defense, though, you are also dissertating. So, like, that's a whole... Yeah, that's true. That's like, a whole... Rock it's around like your neck, pulling you down. I, <laughs> do you know? So when I um when I finished the day I defended, my partner and I took my dissertation in its binder, and we went to Toys R Us and we put it the binder in a onesie and we took photos like the people do. <laughs> and so there's a photo where I'm like holding it no. up. And, <laughs> can I steal this? Please do. Can we? I have I have never laughed so hard and felt so free yes so i put it i put it there was one in a crib and and i found some like spooky onesies right so i had it one that was in a spooky onesie um yeah we did and we did all the stereotypical baby photos um my cousins who were all having human babies were a lot less amused by it than i was but i have not the literally, human baby havers oh my gosh <laughs> but i have never laughed so hard. In fact, I was afraid they were going to ask us to leave because what were these adult people, adult children, adults without children doing <laughs> with this like binder? But you should 100% do it. It's the most cathartic experience you oh, will yeah. ever have. Oh, yeah. I think, you know what? I'm going to put it in a stroller and yes. just put a picture of me out in front of the house. You have to. You have to. And just see. And it's look what got delivered. It's, yeah, it's, um, and then it's, if my parents ever lose their mind and start saying something, we're just going to send them that picture. See? Like, See, you're the one who said that education was the key. <laughs> That's right. So education is the future. <laughs> See, so there now that go. you're done getting a medical degree, like <laughs> when are grandchildren like that? Oh my gosh, yes. Oh my gosh. So other than the dissertation, which is not nothing, but also probably something that you're just eager to get done, as opposed to um, super excited about at this moment in time anyway what is next for jolie tumajan okay so first of all as soon as this party is done and this this anthology is launched i am disappearing for four weeks and i don't want to hear any words <gasps> oh nothing, my gosh nothing. Are... i just i don't want to hear i'm gonna spend like an entire day in a hammock with just like no phone and only like instrumental music i don't want to see the alphabet Oh my gosh. I don't want to see the alphabet. That's going to be um, amazing. And once I recover from the anthology, yes. Um, I have a book coming out in October. I'll get Do to you, come see you again. Yes. The one through um, Tenebris Press. Tenebris Press with Carson Winter, Post Haste Manor. Yes. Uh, 
a very decon uh, the deconstructed history of a very haunted house. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, it's uh, it was so fun to write. I, I it's a little different from my usual fare. Um, mm -hmm. I'm usually a very like. I write horror, but the ghosts are depression. Like I'm like one of those <laughs> people. And this was like a body count. Mm. And like the ghosts are still depression. Yeah, sure. But there's more of a body count to this than you usually get with me. That's um, cool. There's there's a little more gore. There's a little more like to it. Um and Carson and told me so that fun. you the two of you hadn't worked together prior to this. Nope, we just did it on a whim. Oh my gosh. Don't That's... tell any everybody's gonna know now and hate us. I we... I can't wait to see the product of it. No. He had a story out in about maybe a year or two ago, both of us. He had a story out in Apex magazine that I thought <laughs> called In Haskins that I read and like I couldn't like, damn, bro, like Jesus. <laughs> um and then I had a story in Black Static called Elizabeth Frankenstein is the saddest girl on earth that mm. apparently he read and had the same response. Mm. And we were like kicking it back and forth one day in chat. And he was like, why don't we do something? And I was like, yeah, all right, whatever. Cause I just thought that he was, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, the, to talk. Right. That's a phrase like, that gets know. used a lot, right? Like we should yeah, definitely and you collaborate. Know what? And after that, we'll start a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be great. But like, he we were like talking back and forth and i don't know how it worked but we just really played off each other really well mm. i adored him he's like my little brother and yeah. like we even though we have like completely different writing styles working with him was a joy mm. we had one minimal disagreement it lasted for three minutes and we went <laughs> to the publisher and said you need to be the tiebreaker we can't decide Wow. That was the whole, it was about what order we were going to put things in. <laughs> that was the whole, everything else, like, that I've heard other people have had horror stories with co-writing, yeah. but like, no, we just rocked out and goofed around for like six months mm. and the book fell out. Like, that's so cool. It is, I, I need a break, but oh, it was wonderful. I'd write with him any, any day of the week. He's fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait to get to see us both. Then shit gets real loud. I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> as you've been talking, I've been thinking about my my most recent interview with Carson and just thinking about like how much fun it's going to get to be to talk to the both of you. Because uh, I can. Yeah, we play off each yeah. other. It's yeah. a constant game of yes and oh. with each other. It's, Which it's is a what, lot. what better way to to write though, right? It's a good writing partnership. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's a really good writing partnership. And I've had some that were not so fucking great. Yes. And this is just really, I think what it is, is Cartness and I have very different writing methods. Mm. We have very different writing styles. Mm. We have very different approaches but he and I, I think, are chewing on the same basic problems. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And and a lot of it is about the, the sheer grotesquery of the world around you. Yes. And he sort of leans into it and exaggerates it, whereas I'm one of those, like, enough rope to hang yourself <laughs> sorts. But, like, we're we're discussing the same things. We're just coming at it very differently. That book was a blast to write. I hope you guys have a blast reading it. Uh, shoot, we should be starting. Oh, God, edit should be through soon. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. You're going to have so to lay down. It's so much faster than so you hard. think. Yeah. 
That's so cool. So, and so that comes out in October, and then I defend my dissertation in November. <laughs> and then... Oh, my God. And then you're going to lay down, right? For like... Yeah, for about okay. a year. Okay, for good. about a year. No good. one's going to... I'm done. Honestly, done. yeah, you should. You, you, It will be well-deserved, but you'll also probably need it. You'll be so fried um, just from... Because you're promoting... And it's not like you're doing nothing right now, right? It's mm -hmm. not like stuff is only happening in October. Oh, no, great. the thing that I have to do once I get out of here is actually do some stuff for, for Post Haste Manor to Excellent. hand over to Tenebris so that they can start doing their work for Post Haste Manor. Oh, that's great. That's so, so great. So, yeah, we're already starting on that. That's already on the pile. And if you, without, like, locking you in because no one's going to be like, but this is what you said on the podcast, if, if in, a, like, a year or a year and a half when you have forgotten the heartache of being an editor and you've um forgotten that what it's like to be so tired that you want to lay down and never get up again what would you want your next anthology to sort of examine if you were to do another um i would probably want it to be another limited call anthology another marginalized voices anthology what would i like it to examine Oh man, you finally got me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, that was definitely not a question that I had given you time to prepare. Sorry. <laughs> I'd like it to examine. No, it's okay. Let me think about that. What do I... <sighs> family. The way that families hurt each other, I think, is... And, and family is one of our most powerful images like like hysteria it's a very very powerful image that's used to minimize and hide and excuse a lot of really horrible things mm. um and so i might think of something else in the meantime but i think that the concept of family is kind of like a, a sacred sacred cow <clears throat> Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can't not talk to her. That's <laughs> your mother. Like, yeah, yes. fucking watch me. Like, that's yes. one of those sort of things. And, like, people really treat you some type of way if you're not really involved with your family. And so I think that not just, like, the weird perverse things that go on in family, but that larger implication of having, like, this sacred golden idol of a culture that is untouchable, that we have holidays surrounding, mm -hmm. that we have our entire lives are told over and over and over again that you have to be around these people because you are related to mm -hmm. them. Like, I would really like to see horror that doesn't necessarily deal with the family dynamics, but with that outside pressure mm -hmm. of, like, it's really hard to escape and have people treat you like you're freaking weird. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your family did. If you don't talk, you're going to be like, they locked me in a closet and beat me. I was the child under Omelas. Right. And they would be like, but she's your mother. But it's like, her birthday. Yeah. Yes. 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 And, and they do it. And I've got a lot of friends who have sort of wobbly home lives. You know, I grew up in kind of a dysfunctional house and when you finally say like this is dysfunctional i don't want to deal with this everybody acts like you're nuts yes and so there's that kind of like 
large cultural like gaslighting that happens with family. And I think that that's really ripe. I think that so many of us have had that either, you know, Captain Daddy issues over here or like just that wound of like, time to go to dinner with your racist fucking uncle and we're just gonna let him injure you because right. he's your uncle. Right, like, right. And so much horror that does family stuff always, and I, I would be okay if I never had to read another story that did this, always goes to incest, right? And and like, it's not that that's not an shit. area, right? But like like you said, it's it's all the, the seemingly innocence. Like, why do we have a whole day devoted to so-and-so? Or why is it that mm-hmm. even though you don't talk to these people any other day of the year, you're expected to get together for this one event or mm-hmm. um, you're expected to be there, right? Um, so mm-hmm. I, that would be, oh, that'd be exciting. Okay. So, you know, in what, it's 2023 now. So in like 2025, 2026, uh, who knows, there might be a, a new- 2024, call me in 2024. We'll see if I'm going to, if I'm ready okay. to do it again. That feels like- pretty not far away though so you mean like this time in 2024 right yeah yeah i started the anthology i started aseptic and faintly sadistic when did roe v way fall like june 26th of last year okay and i think i started it about five days after that Mm -hmm. we had decided that we were going to not sit through this quietly so like Maybe June of like next year, I'll okay. be okay to like think of something. Yeah. Okay. I figure doing it without having to do the day job and the dissertation might huh. be a lot easier. I can't even imagine. I'm I'm tired just thinking about it. So <laughs> I just I just take my melatonin at nine p.m. every night. And just oh <laughs> done. I yeah. I, I know there's a couple of people that have said, and that's why I'm not in higher ed anymore. And I'm like that that makes sense to me uh, so the fact you're doing all three is it's just and also coming on to this podcast so thank you so much for I'm talking so to me here. and like explaining answering questions i didn't give you ahead of time um and talking about an anthology that those of you who are listening need to check out by the time you get oh. to listen to this episode it's a hundred percent out because it's already out when we're recording this interview yep. in may and um can they, because I know like Tenebris Press tries to avoid our, our the overlord that is Amazon. Can can people get aseptic? It's and not Tenebris for this one. Tenebris is for the next one. This is Cosmic right. Horror Monthly. And do you they do the it. same thing as Tenebris? Where they- yes, you can get it straight from Cosmic Horror Monthly. It's also on Amazon. Okay. But if I remember correctly, if you get it directly from us, more money goes to the charity. There's not an oh. Amazon cut in there. And so, like, get it right from us. Yes. Right from the Cosmic Horror Monthly website. Just go right to their website, right to store, right to books. It's first one right Perfect. there. We've got the paper book and the ebook for you right now. That's um, exciting. Please love it. Send me an email. Review, review, review. Yes, yes. Any more Vanna White shilling that I need to be doing? <laughs> Let me see. Just. Um, yeah, so for those of you that are listening, you can send uh, us an email or contact us in our social media, and we can get a hold of Jolie. Jolie's information is also in the description of this of this episode, and, you know, try again not to ensure that Amazon will be ruling us all in about five more years by buying it directly from Cosmic Horror Monthly. Is that what it is? 
Cosmic yes. Horror Monthly. Yes. Perfect. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And to those of you listening, thank you for listening to our nightmares and have a spooktacular day. Thanks for having me. Jolie Tumajan, she, her, is at the time that I'm speaking a PhD candidate, although perhaps at the time you are listening, she will have PhD in hand. She is also a writer, editor, and all-around ghoul. Her dissertation is focused on the women who wrote for Weird Tales, and her own work has appeared in Upon a Thrice Time, Death in the Mouth, and Black Static, among other places. She is editor of the 2023 Aseptic and Faintly Sadistic, an anthology of hysteria fiction, which benefits the Chicago Abortion Fund and is published through Cosmic Horror Monthly. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at Jolie Tumajong.